Good morning, everybody. Hope you're doing well. It's Steph. It is uh, August, early August for sure. It's definitely a Tuesday, and it's right after the long weekend. Let's actually, since we're not in motion yet, let's see if we can't actually figure out the date. Don't know why I have this obsession with saying the date. Let's just assume that it's useful in some manner. But we are talking about the 8th of August, 2000. And 6, 8.33 in the morning, on my way to work. So, we are going to have a chat, with your very kind permission, about economics this morning. And an idea that I'm absolutely sure is not mine, but that I have not read anywhere. And I will sort of talk about it in general. I think that it could be one of the most important topics in economics, but I could also be wrong about that. But just before we do that, I did spend yesterday finally biting the bullet to figure out how to do free domain radio videos. And that was <laughs> kind of frustrating, as this stuff tends to be when you're starting to get it going. So I'm using a, a fairly old Logitech webcam that I bought to chat with Christina about a couple of years ago. And I thought I would give it a shot. I know that uh, it doesn't have the great, the best picture in the world, but internet video with bandwidth costs tends to be sort of the lower the resolution, the better. So it records an AVI. I did a 22-minute podcast on the weekend in video. And I also did a short uh, five-minute introduction to Free Domain Radio. And I also did a a short introduction to the website or to the idea which I was thinking of putting on the main page so in Flash as I converted the video to Flash and it was kind of fun um, it's very interesting to see yourself and I'm sure you know for those of you who've been listening for a while it might be kind of interesting to see the big flapping forehead at work so it might be uh, uh, worth uh, giving it a shot I couldn't figure out how to get the uh, the sort of solar flare f-stop glare coming off uh, the forehead, so I used a baseball cap for the first bit, and then I figured it out, and so I uh, didn't use a baseball cap for the last bit, and so if you see the cap, don't uh, think, as some people on the board did, that it's because I have a problem with being bald. We love the bald. The bald is great, but uh, I just, uh, <laughs> the bald is not so great when you look like a solar eclipse. Anyway, so... Have a look at those. I'm uploaded, I've uploaded them to Google Video and submitted them for approval. And we're just going to have to wait uh, until we can get those. The long one is 21 minutes, turns out to be 100 megabytes. Now, of course, that's rather extreme. So I am going to have a problem uh, with putting that one as part of my 500 gigs a month bandwidth with the regular podcast. So I'm going to have to have those not as part of the XML feed, but coming from YouTube or from uh, Google Video or some other such delivery mechanism. But they have a maximum of 10 minutes. So succinctness will have to be the order of the day. But that's what I worked on yesterday. And if anybody knows a good, a good way to generically compress AVI, AVI files, that would be great. I'm running at about, it's about 20 megs, 21 or 22 megs for 20, sorry, it's 21 megs for about five minutes of video, which seems rather excessive, and of course is going to completely preclude my other option, which is to have video podcasts where I set the webcam up on my dashboard, and you can see me rambling while I drive, 
which would simply be for the novelty factor. I don't, <laughs> I don't think it would add a huge amount to the value of the podcast, but I think it could be quite a fun uh, novelty. And uh, if you're like me, you sort of like the making of videos if you like songs, so maybe <laughs> you could see the studio in motion here. And that would be uh, sort of fun for you. Uh, it certainly would be fun for me to see me doing a podcast. So, anyway, uh, we're 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 going to video, baby. And I'm looking at a couple of software packages uh, which I will use some donation money for, which makes it uh, a little bit more professional looking. So that what I would like to do is do uh, the way I used to do emails of the week and board updates. Uh, and I haven't done emails of the week for a while because, of course, we have the board. But I thought it might be fun to do emails of the week in sort of a news video format. But uh, uh, the time hole that is Freedom Aid Radio continues to lower beneath me like a Florida sinkhole. Anyway, so back to economics. One of the major mysteries around economics that I've never seen satisfactorily explained in a way that makes fundamental sense is the rise of the Industrial Revolution and the reasons for the generation of wealth versus the non-generation of wealth that occurs in different societies and so on. And lots of people say, well, it was a co-joining of factors, like it was just sort of a random thing. And like you had a, an exhaustion of the finances of the state at the same time as you had uh, the spread of Roman law, and you also had the fragmentation of Christianity, and you had the, um, uh, the invention of certain machinery. And you put all of that into a frappe blender, and you push the button, and lo and behold from this strange co-joining of factors, this alignment of productive planets, you end up with the Industrial Revolution. And that's never seemed like a very satisfactory explanation to me. And it also seems, it smacks as elementally frustrating as well. And it also smacks of an apology for the existing state of uh, wretched poverty that most of mankind still lives in, sort of along the lines of... Uh, well, you guys have to wait for your own planets to align, and then you will start to get freedom and economic productivity. And I've sort of wor- I'm sort of working with a different idea that's more sort of elemental and sort of basic and reproducible in terms of how to bring about an industrial revolution and why. So the, the how and the why. But the how is really simple. The how is simply stop shooting people. Right, I mean that's that would seem to me to be the best approach uh, is simply to stop. Like, if you want wealth to occur within your country or your geographical region, or if you're interested in having wealth occur in a particular geographical region, like that would uh, do something for you, and of course it would do something for all of us, not just out of compassion for our fellow man, but also because uh, people who are poor and ignorant uh, tend to do. Uh, crazy, scary things and to be susceptible to even more manipulation than we in the West are susceptible to. We just had a post from a uh, reader who is overseas in Casablanca, a listener, and he's got 70,000 people uh, running down the streets uh, streets, uh, screaming death to USA, death to USA, and uh, feeling that Hezbollah is a close, personal, and well-valued family friend. And this, of course, is terrifying him, as it would any sane human being, and he's afraid to leave his uh, location. And, I mean, this is where where we live, right? I mean, he's in the worst conjunction or the worst intersection of brutal powers because he's in the grip of a theocracy, 
and a theocracy is combined with foreign policy from the West. So where those two meet, those are usually the two most brutal aspects of state uh, and, uh, and religious power, theocracy plus foreign policy. So he's in a real tinderbox. And so we kind of want wealth to be generated to allow people to pay for their own schools so that they don't end up being put into these mind-destroying state and religious propaganda mills and going through uh, the, uh, the identity grinder that is modern education, either in a theological or state-based situation. So the first thing, like if you want your store to run well, you shouldn't be shooting your employees and your customers. That would sort of be... You know, I don't know if they cover that in Business 101, but it, it, should, it should seem fairly important that if you, if you open a store, then shooting customers who displease you or employees who displease you would sort of be bad in terms of getting your business to be a major flourishing economic concern. And it does seem to me rather basic and rather obvious that human beings are not different in any epistemological or metaphysical sense or moral sense. They're not different in a large group than they are in a small community or in a family. So, for instance, if your teenager does something to displease you, it would seem that most of us would have a moral problem with shooting your teenager or throwing him into the basement and letting men rape him. I mean, that would seem to be a fairly bad approach to ethics. If you are interested in reducing theft, and even if you are in the sort of Saudi Arabian world, and you believe that cutting off the hand of the thief is a really great thing to do, and I did have one person on the board who posted, not that it was a great thing to do, but that it was, you know, obviously effective, that, that crime was minimal, that you could leave your wallet out, and so on. And this is just part of the whole blindness that we have to the actions of the state, uh, which we've been trained to be blind to, although it's blindingly obvious once you see it, that if theft should result in the cutting off of one's hand, then all of the tax collectors and the Saudi princes and the bureaucrats and the teachers and the public servants and the garbage collectors and so on all of those who either steal or are paid through stolen money should have their hands cut off. All of the policemen, all of the military, uh, all of the foreign ministers, uh, just about uh, everyone, and this would probably be at least half, if not more than half, of the population should then have their hands cut off, and that doesn't seem to occur. So it's rather hard for me to look at that situation and say, yeah, they're really uh, justly punishing theft there, and, and boy, uh, you can really have your property and uh, be secure in Saudi Arabia, right? You could if there were no taxation, but uh, there is, of course. So that's just something that's hard for us to see, but it would seem to me that since, you know, stabbing or shooting your son if he displeases you, um, or stabbing or shooting or throwing into rape rooms your employees or customers if you run a business, would be pretty bad. And in the latter case, it would be pretty bad for economic growth, right, if everyone had the right to do that. So if you went into a store and if you did something wrong and there were big books of rules in the stores, but you never really understood them all, but if you did something wrong, they got to shoot you uh, without any repercussions and your family also had to pay for your burial, um, 
And it's the old thing they used to do in the Chinese Communist Empire, the one that Shirley MacLaine lavished so much praise on in the 1970s, that they would shoot you and send the bull, the bill for you, the bullet to your family to pay. Just a, a nice little addist, additional sadistic twist to a, a slaveringly evil and murderous regime. But that would be a disincentive, let's say, to economic growth, that if you displeased a store owner based on some subjective interpretation of dozens of books of rules, that you would get shot or thrown into rape rooms for 20 years or 10 years. That would be a fair disincentive to economic growth. And the other thing that would be a pretty strong disincentive to economic growth would be that if, after navigating this perilous and treacherous maze in order to get a particular good that you wanted, that you would uh, leave the store and uh, have to give uh, 60, 70, 80 percent of that good to uh, somebody at the point of a gun. Right? That would seem that would seem to be a pretty strong disincentive of economic growth. The only thing that you would do, the only way that you would ever go and do something like that, right? navigate the violence of the storekeepers and then have it all preyed upon you as you left, the only reason that you would do that is that that would only be preferable to being dead directly. So if you're dying of starvation or thirst, you will probably gulp down your terror and end up going into a store to uh, get bread and water and even give it up to the thieves on the sidewalk. But that's about it, right? That's all. You're not going to do that for an iPod. I'm sorry to be overusing the iPod thing, but it just sort of comes to mind. But you're not going to do that for a consumer good. You're not going to do that for a pack of gum, right? You will do that for subsistence, but not anything else. So violence really brings economic growth to a standstill. It doesn't kill economics completely, because to kill economics, to kill any kind of allocation of resources, is, uh, is, can only result from everyone being dead. Right? So the allocation of resources is bread to mouth, and water to mouth as well. So that is, uh, to me, the basic of economic disincentive, is when uh, the risk of doing business is getting killed uh, or thrown into rape rooms, both for, and we were just talking about it from the customer standpoint, but this is also, of course, the case with those who want to start businesses. If you go to India, it will take you years to get a license to open up a business, which you can get in about 20 minutes in Singapore. And that is really quite fascinating when you think about it, that to get involved in business, you have to wait for years to get a license, uh, there's no bankruptcy or a little bankruptcy in India, so if you end up running into trouble, you can end up with like three or four generations paying off the debt, and they may never be free. Basically, you've sold all of your future progeny into a kind of slavery, and the taxes on business are enormously high, and the bribery requires pretty significant contacts. So basically, if you don't navigate this maze, then uh, you get arrested, uh, thrown into the rape rooms. If you resist, you get shot. And uh, the jails in India, I think, would be uh, preferable to be, would be preferable to get shot rather than to be sent to a jail in uh, in Calcutta, say, or Mumbai, or New Delhi, or wherever. So, this is the reality of economic growth: that when any kind of transaction becomes incredibly dangerous, right? You say the the uh, transaction costs become exorbitantly high. 
then the only time that you will perform those transactions will be uh, when you are uh, going to die if you don't, right? I mean, then it's just like, okay, well, the plane's going down. If I stay on board, I'm going to crash, so I'll jump, right? People don't jump from a plane any more than they jump from uh, high office buildings unless the uh, alternative is certain death. So that is the basis to me, or the basics of, of economic growth. Now, I think that you can find the catalyst for the Industrial Revolution not by putting the cart before the horse and by saying, well, these things were invented, and this gave impetus to the Industrial Revolution. The real question, of course, is not um, what happened after these things were invented, but why were they invented in the first place? Right? Well, why was it that in the late, 19, uh, late 18th and early 19th century there was such an enormous rise of investment in capital goods? And capital goods are those which you do not sell directly to the consumer. Uh, those are consumer goods or whatever you want to call them. Um, and it's not the money that you pay the guy to sweep the floor. Right? That's sort of in your expense or maintenance budget. The capital budget is the money that you put into upgrading your machinery so that you can produce more widgets. So one of the things that occurred was that you had uh, wool, and wool was sort of uh, woven uh, to some degree by hand, and then you got uh, people in invested in, in looms to be able to weave uh, wool, and this of course occurred uh, with cotton as well, uh, more automatically, and this was uh, this is what gave rise to people like Luddites, which is still a term used for those who are anti-industrial. That they sort of stomped on and burnt down all of these automated machineries because they felt that they were putting them out of business and uh, as sort of hand weavers and so on. But the real question is not, well, what happened after these looms were invented or the steam engine was invented or the internal combustion engine was invented. The real question is why did people invent them? Were did was there some? Did we trip over some capitalist gene, and suddenly uh, there was a whole uh, a series of generations of entrepreneurs who just had the magical ability to come up with these things that people couldn't come up with before? Well, of course not. Of course not. Uh, human beings genetically haven't altered in hundreds of thousands of years in any fundamental way. So, I mean, the, uh, the, there's no real mystery to it. I mean, the the basic reason why uh, capital goods were invested in was that for the first time in history people actually had a, an ability to keep the proceeds of their investments. See, capitalism, or you could say the free market, but we'll just talk about capitalism, and the, the, the two terms are almost the same in my book, but we'll just talk about capitalism like that you can't have economic progress without the accumulation of capital, of uh, deferred uh, income or deferred spending, sorry, not deferred income, of deferred spending or deferred gratification, which accumulates so that you can invest it in order to reap greater rewards later on. So if you are a kid and you want to have a gorge fest and you want to have a gorge fest on five candy bars and you have an allowance of a buck a week and candy bars are a buck, then you obviously have to defer eating candy for uh, candy bars for five weeks in order to be able to have your gorge fest. That's basically you, uh, by not eating the candy bar every week, you have accumulated five bucks worth of deferred uh, gratification or deferred candy eating, which you can then apply all at once. So you've stored up some, some capital, and then you invest it all at once. Now, that's sort of not a great example, but uh, you know, if, you, uh, if you run a paper route and you end up not spending your money and then you end up being able to pay someone 
to sublet out your paper route or you invest that money in bus fares so that you can go and get some more customers which you can then rent out, then basically what you've done is through your deferred income, you have uh, uh, gained the ability through investment not in machinery, but in customers in this case. Again, I'm, if I'm going to use a kid metaphor, there's not a lot of kid capitalists out there, but there are some, then you've def by deferring your gratification, you can invest in, uh, in services and in customers, and then you get a greater income down the road. Now, if you're in a situation, though, where everything over a dollar is taxed, in other words, if you accumulate more than a dollar, it gets taken away from you by force, or you get shot or thrown to rape rooms if you resist, then of course you're not going to defer gratification. There's simply no possibility whatsoever that you're going to defer gratification if, through deferring gratification, you end up losing what you could have otherwise had. Right? So if you want to save up for five candy bars, and then when you walk into the store, some tax agent says, oh, you have five bucks. Well, as a kid, you're not allowed to have any more than one dollar, so I'm going to take these four bucks away. Well, all that you see in your mind's eye is four candy bars spiraling off into nothing and five, year, five uh, weeks of self-deprivation proving to be a, a complete falsity. Well, four of those weeks, for sure. you got a dollar left, you can have a candy bar. But, you know, as a kid, if you're young enough, you're going to feel tears, rage, injustice, and all that kind of stuff. And for sure, you're not going to defer your gratification again. It just gets ripped away from you, right? It just gets stolen from you. And that's particularly frustrating to a human being. So if you get to keep the proceeds of the investment that results from your deferred gratification, and if other people, if it's not just you but other people as well, right? Because the one thing that's true about capitalism is that if you're the only person who gets to defer gratification, then it doesn't really help because you then will get to buy more of the pitiful products, the gruel and water that is produced in a non capitalist economy, but why would you want more gruel, really? I mean, if you can only eat one meal a day. But if nobody else gets to defer their, gets to uh, achieve the profits from the investment that results from deferred gratification, then you are an economy of one, right? It's, so nobody's going to invest in a restaurant for you to go and eat at and spend your extra money because you're the only person who profits from deferred gratification. So it has to be a, a universal phenomenon. And then you get all the multiplicity of goods and services that are provided when people defer their gratification to invest in X, Y, and Z. This is a very common story for immigrants, right? That you, uh, you're a Korean immigrant, and you come over with nothing, and you work as a cab driver, and then you work as a, uh, a, a waiter, and then you uh, do whatever. But basically, you are living in a, a one- or two-bedroom apartment with your wife and having a kid or two, and you're saving, 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 right? Deferring gratification, deferring gratification. And then what you end up doing is you end up buying a convenience store, right? So your deferred gratification has now ended up with you at least being able to put a down payment on a convenience store, and then it's all paid off because then you get to work 70 hours a week for a little bit more money. So, so that's important. And that kind of deferred gratification only occurs if the lowliest people also get to keep the profits that result from that deferred gratification. So, I mean, pretty much throughout history, the uh, priests and the kings uh, got to keep the results of their deferred gratification. It's just that because nobody else did, there was no other investment which produced goods and services that were worth buying. So it was sort of a, you know, hey, would you like another bowl of gruel, basically? I mean, there was a little bit more to it than that, but not a whole lot more. So the root of the Industrial Revolution is simply the withdrawal of violence and the establishment of property rights. It's really that simple. As I wrote in a novel once, there are people 
who build factories and there are people who build the conditions which make factories prop profitable, right? And so the entrepreneur builds a factory. The philosopher, uh, and I would hesitate to say the economist, although Adam Smith, of course, had, of course, had a huge influence here, but his influence was temporary because, and, and also was based on an argument from effect, not it's wrong to kill and rape, which is what eliminates the moral validity of the state. He wasn't uh, so much for that. And listening to Mark Skousen's The History of Modern Economics, or The Making of Modern Economics is a good book, it really is depressing, of course, the number of people who claim to be free market but have no problem with socialist redistribution. Or if they do, it's because it's less than optimal in terms of the accumulation of capital. Like the accumulation of capital means anything. Right? <laughs> people don't defer gratification in order as their end goal or their end game to buy a convenience store. Right? They defer their gratification in order to become happy. And so that becoming happy may have nothing to do with buying a convenience store. It may be that you give up on your vacations for five years or ten years so that you can take uh, five months off your job and you can go and explore Europe uh, uh, with a backpack. I mean, maybe that's your big thing. And an economist would have no defense for that if he's around the accumulation of capital. He's only going to have... Because you're basically accumulating capital and then just dissipating it. I mean, not in a bad way. I mean, all capital gets dissipated when we die anyway, so at least for us. So it's not like that's a bad thing. It's just that an economist, or at least the economists of the 19th century mold, were all about, well, if it doesn't accumulate or add to capital, then it's bad and so on. And that's why there was a, a big debate throughout history about two things, right? The, the first thing was usury. Uh, the, the lending of money for interest, which we've talked about before, and the second is the debate about savings, right? Well, if everyone saves, then no one's buying anything, and that's bad for the economy, right? But if, if nobody saves, then there's no capital accumulation, and so the economy never improves, right? So I guess, like a lot of people, they have trouble with individual preference and ambiguity of uh, the, uh, uh, the effect of, of decisions. And, of course, those who argue a lot about savings simply don't understand that the market takes care of it anyway, right? So if everybody's saving, then there's a hunger for capital, right? And there's, a, there's a, an excess of capital, and there is a deficiency of spending. Does this cause capitalism to collapse? Well, of course not. Of course not. My God, I can't believe people debate this stuff. What uh, will happen is that the price of capital will go down, right? So you'll be able to get a million bucks at 1% interest, uh, over 20 years, and what that means is that, of course, the price of houses, the price of cars, all of those things which a lot of people borrow money in order to buy, goes down enormously because there is a deficiency of spending and there is an excess of capital accumulation. And so, oh, excuse me, what will happen is people will then uh, end up buying stuff, right? Because to buy has become cheaper and to save, right, has become less valuable. Because if you stick all your money in the bank and if somebody's lending out, a million bucks at 1% interest, they're only going to be paying 0.00001% interest on your savings account. And so putting money in the bank doesn't do you any good relative to going out and buying something, uh, buying a house for like a thousand bucks a month or whatever. So capitalism totally takes care of that. And so to argue to, argue, uh, to people to say uh, that saving is bad and spending is good or vice versa is completely ridiculous. Right? If, people, if people are spending too much, then the price of the goods is going to go up. 
for two reasons. One is that there's an over-demand, and the second is that the, the price of capital, given that there's a deficiency of savings, the price of capital is just going to increase, which means that uh, net improvements in productivity are going to be more expensive than they would be if capital was cheaper, right? So if you have to borrow a million bucks at 15% to improve your uh, production line, then the goods that come off it are going to be more expensive than if you can borrow that same money at 5%. Right, so the price of goods is going to go up, and also because there's a strong demand for capital, people are going to start to give you T-bills and GICs or whatever at you know 8 or 9%, so the price of goods has gone up, which means you have a disincentive to spend, and the price of uh, putting money in the bank will also go up, which means you have a stronger incentive to save. I mean, the, the market handles all of these things. To me, it's rather remarkable that people have any debates about it. Of course, this is the big debate that, that Keynes had. Um, and uh, one against uh, Hayek, I think it was. But we'll talk about Keynes uh, another time, that mad state's love and fruit. But this uh, kind of stuff, to me, is all very simple. If you want uh, for uh, people to be uh, free and happy and economically productive and, and wealthy and so on, or at least have the possibility of all of that, then you just stop shooting them. It really is quite simple. You just stop shooting them, you stop throwing them into rape rooms, and you're going to get exactly that. There's no mystery to economic growth. It's just don't shoot people. And, you know, it's a good idea in general. Right? Don't shoot innocent people who are just out there trying to do their thing and make a living and provide for their family and prosper as they see fit. You don't gun people like that down. You don't shoot someone for opening a store. Right? <laughs> you don't shoot someone for not paying you protection money. I mean, you can, but it's wrong, right? Because it's not a universal phenomenon, and it's not something that I get to do, right? I mean, if I do it, I'm called the mafia, but if the government does it, then they're called uh, uh, servants of the public good who do nothing but help and protect uh, the innocent. But uh, that's the, <laughs> they get to tell all the kids their tales, fairy tales, for 14 years straight. So it's no uh, huge shock, I think, that we are having a certain amount of difficulty breaking through that propaganda wall, but, uh, you know, patience and chipping away. I mean, I'm not saying that we have all the time in the world, but patience and chipping away will help us uh, with that. So uh, I'd like to thank you for listening. Of course, I would also like to encourage you to uh, uh, take out your PayPal or your Visa. You can donate to Free Domain Radio without requiring a PayPal account. Just slap it on your Visa. I think we also take e-checks. One kind soul has actually mailed me a physical check, which after looking it up on the Internet, I now remember what to do with it and origami, of course, and uh, I haven't received any donations for a couple of days, uh, not too troubling, of course, it was a long weekend, it's the summer, so everyone's out and about, but if you do uh, hear this and uh, yeah, remember uh, to throw a few uh, crusts of bread my way, I would certainly appreciate it, and uh, the board is great, we have a new board, as I've mentioned before, and this is just for people who are dipping around, uh, thanks so much to those two uh, hardy souls who... Uh, uh, did uh, do the upgrade for us and reshuffled some of the categories in a very productive way, I do think. Uh, really appreciate that. And I'm still mulling over whether or not to continue on with the uh, reading of the God of Atheists uh, podio books. Uh, P-O-D-I-O-B-O-O-K-S dot com allows you to sell audiobooks and uh, keep some of the proceeds. So that may be another way that I can generate some income. But unfortunately, it is a very, very time-consuming thing to record an audiobook. You have to do a lot of uh, color lining of the text so you don't accidentally put the wrong word in because, you know, you can have a, a two-line speech and only at the end it says, says so-and-so, right? So you don't want to put the wrong, the wrong voice in and so on. So it's time-consuming and then you make errors and 
if you pause too much or say er, um, or you know, or all the all the verbal ticks that I have, it's very time consuming. So I'm sort of mulling over uh, between that and between the videos and all the other things that I can do to try and get the word out. So uh, drop me a line if you don't mind. Let me know what you think. S dot m o l y n e u x at rogers dot com. Don't worry about the free domain. Ra- free domain. Free domain radio is not working at the moment. I haven't set up the new SMT ser- SMTP server on the virtual server so we'll get to that at some point on the list of things to do but uh, thanks so much for listening as always i uh, appreciate uh, everybody's feedback everybody's participation on the board and i will talk to you soon <laughs>